0: Live from the studios of Washington Post Radio, welcome to a special edition of the Calb Report. Tonight's topic: Politics, Pros and Cons Election 2006. Now our moderator, Marvin Kalb. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Calb Report,
1: a public policy program co-sponsored by the National Press Club, the George Washington University, and the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I'm Marvin Kalb, a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center, and as you heard, our subject tonight, Politics, Pros and Cons, Election 2006. I am joined by Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Candy Crowley, a senior political correspondent and analyst for CNN, Eleanor Clift, a contributing editor at Newsweek Magazine and a regular panelist on the McLaughlin Group and a contributor as well at Fox. Bob Fuss, Capitol Hill correspondent for CBS Radio News. And Andrew Kohut, president of the Pew Research Center and director of its Center on the People and the Press. This program is being carried live on Washington Post Radio and nationally on XM Satellite Radio. And it is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. It's called an off year election, what's coming up on November 7th. Neither the president nor the vice president is running, but just about everyone else is senators, congressmen, and women, governors, mayors, even dark hatchers. The big question is will the Republicans retain control over the Senate and the House, or will the Democrats retake control of the Senate? or the House, or both. Another big question is, will the war in Iraq finally claim a political victim? By which I mean, up to this point, no matter how bad the news from Iraq might have been, the administration seemed to escape being held accountable for the war. So what is the mood of the electorate at this time? Panelists, let's get started. Annie Kohut, you are our star pollster, my judgment, one of the best, in a recent poll, you found that the public is more interested in this off-year election than in past off-year elections. What are the numbers, and what are the numbers telling us?
2: Well, well, first, Marvin, that increased interest is a measure of their discontent. Turnout goes up at times when the public is unhappy. The public is unhappy. They are unhappy with national conditions, the war in Iraq, the economy, rising health care costs, any number of things. As a consequence, President Bush has a 37% approval rating in today's Gallup poll and in our poll and others, and the Congress has an even lower approval rating. This is a time that's very unusual uh, with respect to how, how angry people are and how much people are looking at this midterm election, not as a local election dealing with states and congressional districts, but in terms of national issues. Uh, we have a higher percentage than usual saying they will be keeping in mind what party controls Congress when they cast a ballot. We have the largest percentage since 1982 of uh, in the poll where people say they're, they will be casting a ballot against the president uh, when they vote in their local congressional districts.
1: So... Just to be sure, are the Republicans as interested in this as the Democrats?
2: The Republican enthusiasm generally have an advantage on enthusiasm, but in this election, (laughs) there's more engagement among Democrats.
1: Candy Crowley, you're always running around the country. Are your findings about the public's mood the same, roughly, as Andy's?
3: Absolutely. I don't. It's interesting because when you do visit these individual races, uh, be they Senate or House, they do talk about different things than what we talk about nationally. Uh, They do talk about you know new access to O'Hare or (laughs) whatever the you know whatever the the individual local race is about. We don't really uh, hear a lot lot on the national level, about health care that comes up a lot. it's sort of it's more pocketbook issues. I think Iraq is the patina that falls over the entire country that makes uh things feel bad. Uh, but I do think that in these individual races you what you find is that they are talking about things other than what the national dialogue is
1: and Susan Page, your sense of the public mood, words like angry disillusioned, bitter. Or is it more supportive of the eager to back President Bush no matter what?
4: I think that uh, when I go out and talk to people, I see a landscape that is quite unhappy. And I think largely because of the Iraq War. I think the Iraq War is shaping a landscape that is bad for Republicans, bad for incumbents generally. But since Republicans control the House and Senate, it makes it especially bad for them. And despite the economy, because in fact... While there are some problems with the economy, the economy, in fact, is pretty good. Unemployment is at near record lows. Inflation is low. uh, You know, growth has been okay. Gas prices have come down a lot since the summer. That is not helping Republicans in the way that you might expect it to. And I do think that while there are some other issues that are troubling Republicans, I think this is an election that turns on the war in Iraq.
1: Hmm. Buff, you spend a great deal of time on Capitol Hill. What are your sources tell you is their judgment of the public mood
5: well the republicans are scared they're very scared and and they're acting scared and and you could see some of that in the reaction to the foley scandal where they were all not not only protecting themselves but turning on each other and top republicans blaming each other publicly which shows you how frightened they are I, you know i i agree with with everything that's been said about the mood out there and that clearly a shift can happen i think it's important to remember though that taking over the house is not easy you know, it's happened once. The part, A party shift has happened once in the last 50 years. And the reason for that is that, you know, when we look at these races, you know, we're looking at, I don't know, we, we may have different numbers, but anywhere from like, you know, 30, 40, maybe 50 races that are truly competitive out of 435. And the re-election rate generally is high. People tend to like their member of Congress, even if they dislike Congress as a whole. And so while I think it's certainly, you know possible and maybe even likely that the Democrats can take over the House or the Senate, it's it's not by any means a a sure thing.
1: Hmm. Eleanor Clift, you've covered many elections. Is it your sense that the public is now ready for a big change?
6: I think the trajectory is clear in this election uh, that the Democrats are going to pick up seats and the Republicans are going to uh, lose seats. So we are going to end up probably with a, a House very narrowly controlled by the Democrats, uh, maybe a Senate controlled by the Republicans by one seat. And after all the hoo-ha of who's winning, then you have to ask yourself, what are we left with? in terms of uh, the day after the election and what that means for the last two years of this presidency. In 1994, when the other big shift occurred, when the Republicans took over, Bill Clinton was only two years into his presidency when he (coughs) was faced suddenly with a Republican Congress, and he really refashioned himself uh, to work with the Congress. Uh, President Bush is in the sixth year. Um, He's, uh, I think, looking more towards his legacy. Um, It would be, I think, stunning if he were able to reach out and work with Democrats on Capitol Hill. It's probably more likely that we will get uh, gridlock and the next two years uh, will be uh, a, a wasteland in terms of legislative achievements on Capitol Hill.
1: Tell me, does any one of you think that a landslide is in the works?
4: That I, think, I, think there's a wa- I think there's a wave that's building, and the only question is, how big is the wave, and who does it take with him? Bob, uh, my good friend Bob, said that there were only 30 or 40 con- seats in, in c- contested in Congress. I think that number has grown significantly just in the past uh, week or two. I think we may be looking at 50 or 60 seats in contention. I think it's going to be a very bad year for incumbents. The Republicans, Including
1: Democratic rec- incumbents. W- well,
4: actually, I-, I think this could be an election in which no Democrat loses, which would be <laughs> be quite stunning. I think that it, the Republicans I talk to say they believe the House is now lost and that the only question is can they hold on to the Senate.
2: We have, comparable, Andy we have comparable levels of anti-incumbent sentiment in this election compared to 94. But what we have that's different is that of the contested seats, 31 of the 39 seats, according to Charlie Cook, are held by Republicans. In, the, in 94, the vast majority of the contested seats were held by Democrats, and not one Republican lost, and 53 de- uh, Democrats lost in 94. Now, I'm not saying that sort of <clears throat> those, those sort of numbers will be in play, but the dynamic is completely flipped, and this anti-incumbency sentiment hurts the party in power when the country is angry at the powers that be. Then they were the Democrats. Now they are the Republicans, and the <clears throat> and the numbers in the what the handicappers show and in what the, the horse race polls show, the national surveys show, uh, are, are pretty clear. Bob Fuss, I, I
1: hear <clears throat> your colleagues saying that the idea of, of a landslide is a
5: possibility. It is. I mean, it, clearly there are a lot of parallels to '94 in a lot of a lot of ways, and and I think you know, Susan made a, a really important point here, which is that and and Andy as well, that the this issue of Democrats are not defending anything. I mean, when you look at all the, the House races where the money is being spent and the Senate races, other than the Senate race in New Jersey, where Bob Menendez is in a close race and he was not elected the first time he was appointed, you take that race out, you know, the money is all going into, Republican money is all going into Republicans defending seats. Democratic money is all going into Democrats challenging seats. And, and you know, that obviously is very bad news for Republicans.
1: Help me understand, Candy, what is the, the talk that we're hearing even on this program about the numbers of seats in contention suddenly jumping up, going from what we were talking about, which was roughly 30 to 40, which is what I read, and now we're talking about, well, 40, maybe 50. How does that happen? What is going on? What's the dynamic?
3: Well, a, a lot of things have happened. I think today you see uh, a coverage of the 3,000... 000- American soldiers dead in Iraq. Uh, You've had the Foley scandal, which if it were just Foley, you know, that would go away. The problem is it's a leadership question. It hasn't become about what did he do. Everybody knows what he did. The the problem is what did the leadership do about it? So you keep having these... I mean, Kurt Weldon today up in Pennsylvania, now they're, you know, FBI is raiding his house because they think he maybe funneled money to his his, uh, daughter's business. So these things, it is – I said to somebody the other day, I would not be surprised if locust landed on the <laughs> South Lawn. I mean, it is like just plague after plague after plague that's hitting Republicans, and they can't get up off the mat. And everything that happens, it just opens up other seats that six months ago you would have said, oh, sh- check it off. You know, I think, I'm sorry,
6: plague after plague, plague, but much of it is self-inflicted from the Iraq War to the scandals on, on Capitol Hill, which I think have grown out of a sense of entitlement and greed. Uh, that the Democrats were at after they had held the House for 40 years, but the Republicans, after 10 years, uh, reached this level of corruption. Well, my Republican (laughs) friends say they learn faster.
4: (laughs) You know, I would just agree with with Eleanor. I think one of the parallels I see with 94 is uh, the the Foley scandal and the House banking scandal, you might remember, which, which erupted in 1992. And it's not that, I think, with the exception of a district or two, the Florida district that Mark Foley's from, maybe the district Minnesota 6, where there's Patty Wetterling's running, She's she's been a child advocate, that helps her. In that in most places, I don't think the Foley scandal makes people vote a different way. But I think it, like the House banking scandal, it adds to an impression of a party in power that has forgotten about the people they're supposed to represent mm. and are only taking care of themselves.
6: Yeah, I think the analogy is more to Terry Schiavo and the intervention of this Congress in the fate of the brain-damaged woman. And, um... The polls at that time indicated, I think it was like 82 percent of the public thought this was something Congress should not be doing. And so it. I think Foley is a sort of a symbol of a Congress that has lost its way.
0: You're listening to a special edition of the Kalb Report, politics, pros and cons, election 2006, live from the studios of Washington Post Radio. Once again, our moderator, Marvin Kalb. Let's talk about the war in
1: Iraq, because we've all been alluding to it. Is that the major reason for the discontent among the electorate? Is that, you talk, Candy, about the patina of Iraq that seems to lie across the entire landscape?
3: I I think absolutely it's Iraq. Absolutely it's Iraq. I mean, those numbers are awful. I mean, in the 60 percent range that don't approve of the way the president has handled it. uh, The president has lost what used to be the Republican ace, which was how they handled uh, national security. So it it absolutely is that the economy, you could argue the economy because there's wage gap. There's a, a number of things out there that make it feel particularly in the middle class that that uh, the gap is getting bigger but nonetheless as susan says there are these you know really good signs in the economy and the unemployment's low wall street's going crazy uh, <laughs> and the uh, and the gas prices but it doesn't feel good to people because there is just this blanket of bad feeling and it all comes from Iraq hmm.
1: and the corruption idea that you have talked about also does not really absorb people's attention as much as Iraq the think, lingering sense of deaths wasted
3: it is i think the the corruption issue plays in some in some places but i think the broader the ground in the groundwater in this sort of toxicity of the groundwater of politics Iraq is by far the most toxic but
5: the the other huge effect of Iraq is president bush can't help the republicans and and that's you know what how they've been winning the you know the last few elections in part is with him and with his help and he can't do it he can't help them he can raise money for them and is raising huge amounts of money for them But you know he can't go out there and campaign with them and tell people vote for these republicans because the republicans don't want him out there and so it takes away the ability of of the president to to bring people along to vote for these republicans and that robs them of, of the biggest power they have i think to get votes
1: Andy. Do the numbers back up the sentiment we've just heard?
2: Absolutely. When we ask people, are you going to vote, when you cast a ballot in your congressional district, are you going to be thinking about national issues or local issues? One of the highest percentages I've ever seen, national issues. Then when we follow up and say, well, what one issue is most important to you? They say Iraq. And over this six-week period, we've seen a lot of news about, about Foley and so on, scandals and so on. But I think... The Nick or the, or the release of that intelligence invest uh, study that said that uh, this is spawning the war in Iraq is spawning terrorism, which eighty percent of the public in our uh, respondents in our polls said they had heard about Bob Woodward 's book have really contributed to the political power of this issue right now. We've had a transformation in our numbers of the percentage of people saying the war in Iraq is now not helping the war on terrorism but hurting the war on terrorism. And that, combined with a heavy cost, makes it the, the, the kind of event where people feel they have to vote against somebody because of this. Yeah. Somebody gotta, being... Somebody has to be punished. You know, the irony <laughs> here is that when you ask people about what to do about Iraq, there's no solution that tests well. Hmm. Don't want to pull out, don't want to stay, hmm. uh, but the Democrats are in a very good position of not saying very much, Mm -hmm. and the Republicans just taking the pain.
1: They're not obliged to say anything at this point, right? Well, they're the outsider wanting power, as it were. Candy?
3: Absolutely. I was just going to add one thing uh, about Iraq and uh, the war on terrorism. Uh, The closer the president tried to make that link. I mean, remember, this is the war on terrorism. This Well, now the people say, okay, um, and Iraq's going really badly, and he's lost his edge on, you know, the war against terrorism and national security. So he sort of, uh, you know, made this case, and people said, well, if this is the war on terrorism, Iraq, it's not going well. So he's sort of lost that that edge, I think by six points or something. I mean, something that he's always excelled in was the the war on terrorism.
1: It's interesting, Susan Page, if you take a look at today's Washington Post, the lead story, headline, Dozens of Iraqis killed in reprisals, river towns trade sectarian strikes as militias move in. And then the two reporters say in their third sentence, the wave of killings around the Shiite city of Balad was the bloodiest in a surge of violence that has claimed at least 110 lives in Iraq since Saturday. Then he goes on, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and other Sunni Arab insurgent groups declared a new Islamic republic in the western and central parts of the country.
4: You know, one of the the problems for political strategist in their million-dollar campaigns is that they're really at the mercy of reality at this point. It is not possible, I think, for a, even a presidential speech <clears> with <throat> the bully pulpit of the White House to change public attitudes about what's happening on Iraq. You'd have to have things change on the ground. You'd have to have good news from, from Iraq. Um, and it, that just doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be in the cards. All, we, there have been hopeful moments in Iraq, including at the time of the elections. And we saw in our polling that support for the war went up after things happened that seemed to indicate progress toward establishing a stable democracy there. It's hard to believe in the next three weeks it is possible for there to be, you know, substantive uh uh, compelling, convincing good news out of Iraq because all the news seems to be a spike in violence both against U.S. troops and against Iraqis themselves.
1: Eleanor Clift, have you ever seen a foreign policy issue to grab the public in this way, except, in my own experience, Vietnam?
6: No, no. This uh, the analogy to Vietnam is now there, including the president's polling ratings. He's about where Lyndon Johnson was at the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, then, you'll remember... Um, young people especially, but lots of people took to the streets to protest. And I think there's been sort of confusion about this war because people don't really, they don't go to the streets. Um, We don't have a draft. Uh, The burden is falling on a very small percentage of the population. And people really don't quite know how to voice their opposition. And the the election is certainly uh, one way to do that. And a lot of the news now is focusing on uh, Jim Baker, uh, former Secretary of State, Bush family friend, who's co-chairing uh, an Iraq study group that was created by the Congress that the president initially didn't want but agreed to. And uh, there's a, s- a sense as that he's going to deliver some sort of plan to begin to extricate us from Iraq. He's looking for what he calls a third way between the two political slogans, cut and run and stay the course. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see whether President Bush accedes to this or whether he will dig his heels in uh, no matter what, and whether uh, Secretary of State Baker and his co-chair, former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton, they can can actually find a face-saving way to get out that doesn't leave Iraq in worse shape than we found it.
1: Well, first, you know, it's interesting that both Baker and Hamilton have said that they're not going to tell the American people what their findings are until after the election. Right. They don't want to be political. They don't want to be political, (laughs) absolutely. And I'm wondering if the president obviously knows exactly what these two people have in mind. Is there any sense up on the Hill that the president could... Change his mind about Iraq in some way or another, not be this stubborn, or so it appears.
5: It, it sure doesn't seem likely. And one of one of the more interesting things we've seen in some of the hearings of the past, you know, month or two before Congress went out to campaign, you know, you saw, for instance, the, the you know the commanding generals from uh, from Iraq coming up there and saying it's the worst we've ever seen, and it could be heading to civil war. And and this was so off from what the White House has been continually saying, and what exactly. what the Pentagon civilian leadership has been saying. Then the Democrats brought up a group of retired, just retired generals who are a lot freer to talk, and they were just vicious in terms of basically saying that you know Secretary Rumsfeld has blown this from the beginning, and, and it's terrible strategy, and and you know there there's a there's a split even within. The administration. There are splits coming in the Pentagon. People are breaking away from the president who never would have thought of breaking away from him before and that it, it seems it, it's left him and those immediately around him a little bit isolated on this but I, I mean others may know, know something different but I see no sign that the, the president, the vice president or the secretary of defense are having any second thoughts about anything.
1: Candy Crowley, up until this point there really has been very little accountability on the issue of Iraq. Uh, The president gives one of the nation's highest medals to a CIA director who predicts that the intelligence on the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq is a slam dunk, no question about it. The slam dunk, in fact, produces the chaos that we see in Iraq today. How do you explain, in political terms, the absence of accountability up to this point and what you seem to be suggesting, all of you, is that we're coming up to that moment now when there may be accountability
3: i think a couple of things i think first of all uh, going into iraq americans wanted to believe i mean they wanted to believe that some we were we were fresh off 911 and they believed in this cause and they thought it was for varying reasons but they believed that there was a rationale i think second of all americans um want to win and when it looks when it, things were going well um it, it was it, you know the the war was obviously you know got a lot of public support and people even hung on after that because i think they americans like to think and voters like to think we're doing a good thing we're trying to help people and and they're hard to turn off but i think you know once you get to 3000 once you see that iraqis are being killed you know i mean there was one horrible estimate um th- that came out uh last Six, week i guess the or 700,000 iraqis after a while you know it sinks in but it takes a while because they want to support a cause they want to believe that america is doing the right thing and it takes a while to turn
1: it's interesting you know in terms of the coverage of this issue how in the months leading up to the american military move into iraq it it was in the media, really, that there was not very many questions that were being raised. Now, in the last year or so, there's been this avalanche of books that have come out. And I'm wondering, do people read Uh, Susan, do people read, and are these books having the kind of impact that I think the authors intended?
4: You know, Eleanor mentioned some of the parallels with with the Vietnam War, and I would say one thing that is different with this war is that we see these these, um, books that give quite authoritative insider accounts of decision making you know that's not something we saw until years after until the vietnam war was winding down and years after it was over before americans got a kind of glimpse at some of the debates within the administration now we see some of the internal strife some of the um uh efforts that critics call you know cherry picking of intelligence um, we those things are all laid bare. We're still in the middle of this war. I don't think every American has read hubris and fiasco and and all these various books, but I think they've heard about them. And I think they contribute to an impression that authoritative people, people who are not necessarily liberal Democrats, people who actually worked in the administration, have raised serious questions about the prosecution of the war.
1: Andy Cohart, you're nodding your head. Do do numbers suggest that you come up with that these books are, in fact, having a political impact?
4: Well, I think.
2: The to the extent that they uh, orchestrate a conversation in the media and on the uh, the pages of newspapers, they are having an effect. I don't don't think any one of them. I I think Bob probably Bob Woodward's book is the, the most influential because he's such a popular writer. But I was thinking as you were talking, maybe I'm the only one who remembers that because I'm the oldest person here. Uh, uh, is, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. All right, all right. All right. Um, the Pentagon Papers. Remember the impact of the Pentagon Papers? I mean, the Pentagon Papers were singular in the way that these books are. There are many different accounts of uh, of of the problems that <clears throat> attendant to uh, the war and uh, the subsequent period. But the, the Pentagon Papers had sort of... But they came that. out
4: as af, after U.S. forces were in a period of serious drawdown. It was after it was well after the peak of U.S. forces when the Pentagon Papers were published. But it was 19, published.
2: 1970, or no, 70? 70, 70, 71. 71.
1: 1971
4: So it was 1968, wasn't it, that we had the peak of U.S. forces? We were really in the period there where, where Melvin Laird was pulling down U.S. forces. So it, I, I agree the Pentagon Papers had a huge effect on that debate. But that's they the Pentagon Papers came out at the stage that we hope to be in future years where we're really seeing the withdrawal of U.S. forces. We're not, we're not there yet. U.S. forces are still at, that, uh, at among the highest levels they've been.
1: We're in the midst of a Cal Report program on Washington Post Radio. I'm Marvin Kalb, I'm joined by Susan Page, whom you have just heard, Candy Crowley, Eleanor Clift, Bob Fuss, and Andy Kohut. What are some of the great races that we're looking at right now and that people are covering and that you political reporters get all excited about, Eleanor Clift?
6: Well, right uh, near home here, uh, Virginia, incumbent uh, Senator George Allen, who was thought to be a leading uh, presidential candidate until he uttered the rather incomprehensible word <laughs> makaka and then couldn't f- explain what he meant or where he got it from and then soon su- Does anyone ever learn what
1: that's all about Well
6: it's a, it's a uh it's considered an ethnic slur in some parts of northern Africa apparently um But uh, shortly after that, he discovered uh, he had Jewish roots, and he responded to that by uh, initially being very defensive and then saying that his mother makes great pork chops and he had a ham sandwich for lunch. (laughs) You can't imagine anybody handling these uh, issues any uh, worse. Uh, And his opponent uh, is Jim Webb, uh, former uh, secretary of the Navy under President Reagan a former Republican who actually uh, left the party over uh, his opposition to the war in Iraq. Uh, he's a, a prolific author. Um, he, he's a phenomenal candidate in every way, except he does not have the people-to-people campaign skills that the, our modern campaigns seem to demand. Nonetheless, that is a, a competitive race. And if there is a, a Democratic wave, uh, uh, Jim Webb could actually uh, bring it off.
1: Before coming into the studio, I just happened to look at an um, electoralvote.com survey, and they said that Alan is two points ahead in a count in which there's a three-point differential, <laughs> so it's within that margin of error. Candy Crowley, your favorite. Ohio, just because
3: that's been such a an explosive uh, state in the last presidential election and it also just is, is kind of this collection of all the problems that have come up Ohio is in the top five states um, of uh Iraq war dead for US uh oh, US soldiers no. mm-hmm. uh they've had a, a corruption scandal <laughs> uh in the Republican governorship um it, it's sort of a case of of uh, Senator Dewine who's the Republican incumbent not really having done something particularly awful or wrong i mean he uh did stuff for a state and he was a you know seemed to be an honest broker on capitol hill but um, he may well lose to Sherrod Brown, who was, you know, opposed the war, um, and who is uh, right now leading in the polls. So I just think it's a collection of things that are happening in Ohio that are going to bring down a some some Republican uh, congressmen, but also may bring down DeWine.
1: Susan Page, you know how interesting it was in the 2004 election. It took a long time, and perhaps at the very end, he never quite did it for John Kerry, the Democratic candidate to get up there and just say, I don't want, I don't like this war. He couldn't quite get it out of his mouth. Now it appears, two years later, that people are proud to say that they opposed the war, they voted against the war. This is a major shift.
4: Yeah, you saw the uh, the political calculations of 2008 candidates everywhere. In this election, <laughs> and uh, I know John what do you Car- mean by that. Spike? I mean John Kerry is one of a group of six or seven Democrats who hope to get the presidential nomination in two years. And you know, just as they, they, and you see them doing a couple things: raising money for Democratic candidates, so they gather some chits, making speeches, trying to get some attention. John Kerry, for instance, had an interview with Bob Woodward in Sunday's Washington Post, where again he seemed to have found his voice in talking about the war, something he had really struggled with. Uh, two years ago um, we, You know Presidential contenders Were making those Same kind of calculations When they were vote Deciding whether to vote To authorize this war um, Fought uh, How many years ago Three and a half years ago uh, And not all of them Figured right You know A vote against the war Looked very controversial then Looks a little better now
1: hmm. But first, Favorite favorite battles.
5: Hard to choose one, but, you know, I, I find Rhode Island fascinating because mm-hmm. the Republican establishment poured in an incredible amount of effort and money to save Lincoln Chafee uh, because they, he, don't, really like he, they him. don't like him at all. He votes against the president all the time in the Senate. He is kind of the last liberal Republican left in Congress. And, and they spent all this time and effort and money because they thought and were so afraid that if a conservative won the nomination, they'd lose the state. And they pulled it out and Chafee won. Uh, he's he's uh, currently blocking, by the way, the the UN ambassador John Bolton from getting his his job permanently, and and he'll probably have to leave it in January. So he's still not making the White House happy, and and the you know the latest polling indicates he might very well still lose uh, in, in a state that you know where where I think again Iraq is is the issue, and it's the issue in places like Rhode Island, places like Connecticut, where you know the the Republicans just could just get swept aside over Iraq.
1: How much money is being spent on this? Campaign. I remember reading a a fantastic figure about the 2004 election, and this one, it was said, even though a president is not involved, apparently, of course, I totally forgot because I'm really (laughs) older than you, Andy. I forgot exactly what that figure was, but it was incredible. Very, very large. The Republicans still do have, Candy, a monopoly, not a monopoly, but a lot more money than the Democrats. Is that correct?
3: Well, uh yes and no. I mean the, what what's happened is the Democratic uh National Committee the the, the main arms of the Republican and uh, Democratic side uh actually um the Republicans do have a good deal more money. I think 64 million, but that may be an old number. But the the Senate version and that is lags well behind. Uh, The Republican version lags well behind the Democrats, and the House version is pretty much parallel in toto. Republicans still have more money, but surely not as much as they've had in past elections. And,
4: you know, we we saw the congressional, the campaign fundraising reports out today. And if you looked at competitive House races, say the top 20 competitive House races, Democrats were out fundraising Republicans in those. And that's because some of the smart money that is, is like business money, people, interest group money that w- are going to want things out of Congress, that money is at least hedging its bet, hedging its bet. Democrats might take over. And that's been a big help into the last minute push for Democrats in fundraising.
6: Nonetheless, these last three weeks, I think the Republicans do have a structural advantage. They do have more money. They're going to put probably five million dollars into each of the Senate races that they're uh, trying to hold on to. And they have a superb get out the vote operation. They know how to target down to the individual household. That used to be the Democrats' Uh, strength through the unions. Uh, But in the elections of 02 and 04, the Republicans proved to be superb. And they allegedly have some new tricks this time. And I know that if you talk to Democrats, Democrats are still nervous, wondering what Karl Rove is going to, you know, pull what rabbit he's going to pull out of the hat and in terms of voter turnout.
1: But Karl Rove can pull any kind of a rabbit out of the hat, but he can't go out and rob a bank so it's that they've got a lot of money the republicans do have a lot of money would you explain to me and our listeners what does that mean exactly let's say that you have a lot of money how does that guarantee or significantly improve your opportunity to win an
5: election
6: television ads is, Te- that it, prin- is that it? You're all nodding. Principally, yeah. principally.
3: I think. Of
5: us? O- o- almost exclusively, I think. I, mean, I only it, it, wish I mean, they it were it newspaper
3: ads. That would be a great development. It's like, yeah. you know, six... You can also get on the margins, and turnout obviously is important, you can get six buses to drive up outside the church to get the voters to take them to the polls instead of three. Right. I mean, there's some, you know, there's some ground war expense uh, that you're going to use, but it is principally television ads.
1: Now, are the ads this year going to be as sleazy as they were in two thousand and four, or worse? Absolutely, worse. worse, what, worse than two thousand and four? Yeah. What is it? Have you seen any of these ads that that lead you to that conclusion?
3: I mean, they're all over. I mean, they really are. I mean, look, the closer a race is, the nastier the ads get. I mean, this is—we are now in the period of the nasty ad. Now they'll—they'll they'll be about. Five days ahead of the uh, actual election date when everyone will go back to their nice, soft, you know, this is a guy and he has a family and he's a wonderful person. But between now and then, it is brass knuckle stuff.
1: Well, in the New York Times today on the op-ed page, Kevin Sweeney writes that at this point in the fall campaign, unabashed negativity clocks every media outlet. Uh, The stench of foul political advertising is everywhere. And one senses that little will change. Americans once again will hold their noses and vote. That about right?
6: Well, um, the Republicans have so many things going against them that they've settled on the strategy of saying, "Okay, we're not we're we're not so great, but the other guy is really bad." And so they call it definition and clarification. And so they have to define the opponent as uh, somebody to be really uh, afraid of. And so you have this, you know, eerie sounding music and these uh, shadowy figures on the screen and, and any, any impropriety of any kind is blown up out of proportion. Any vote that uh, they might not like is blown up out of proportion. You know, there's
1: also that wonderful male voice that comes in in some of these commercials now this man is about Mm -hmm. to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. you have this feeling that this guy is a criminal. (laughs) And he's probably a very decent politician trying to win an election.
4: Well, you know, I think politicians in both parties become pretty sophisticated about responding to negative ads. And I think what politicians have learned is that you can't just let it stand. You can't let a charge stand. You've got to respond to it. But Americans have also gotten pretty sophisticated about taking uh, charges when there is an answer, You know, being willing to look at the answer as well as the charge. And one of the big challenges in people who specialize in negative (laughs) ads is breaking through voter skepticism about what it is you're, you're saying. And so you see things like the Michael Steele ads here in Uh, In uh, Maryland that used his puppy or I guess it wasn't even his puppy, but a borrowed puppy (laughs) to say, you know, they're going to say such terrible things about me. They're going to even say I hate puppies, but I love puppies, which was a rather engaging way to say, don't believe the negative ads that are about to come.
1: Right. But they're coming. There's no question about well, that. Well, you know,
4: there's. it's one thing to have an ad that's inaccurate and a slur, and that would be a bad thing. But I don't think an ad that draws a contrast or points out a point of view or des- describes positions candidates have taken, I don't think those are necessarily bad ads to have. I think those can be informational. Uh, I wouldn't paint with, you know, a totally broad brush that just an ad that's trying to make the case against an opponent is not necessarily, you know, a, 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 doesn't necessarily besmirch our democracy.
2: Andy Kohut. Uh, Look, money matters, but it's not the only thing. Uh, And uh, it can push candidates over the line who, uh, without that money, wouldn't be there. But it's not going to reverse the kinds of things that we've been talking about. You just, I mean, there is a correlation between how much money people spend and whether they get elected. But it's not not a great correlation or uh, Phil Graham would be president would have been president of the United States Michael Huffington would have won in in California you just can't buy elections Uh, it does matter but you have to put some perspective and some balance
4: you know for instance if you look at the governor's race in Michigan which has been an interesting one uh, Dick DeVos has spent more Dick DeVos is a wealthy Republican candidate for governor against Jennifer Granholm the incumbent Democrat he has spent more money on TV ads than was spent by all the parties and candidates and all the interest groups in the last governor's race. My God. So that's a significant amount of money. And he's he brought that race, it was even, he would, pulled a little bit ahead some time ago. New poll out shows, Detroit Free Press poll out today shows Granholm was pulled back up ahead five points, which kind of proves Andy's point that I think you need enough money to be on the air and respond, but you don't need to match dollar for dollar when the political climate's on your side.
6: Well, I think actually in Virginia, the amount of money that George Allen has spent on negative ads about Jim Webb have probably helped Allen. Uh, Jim Webb 30 years ago, I guess, opposed women in the service academies and and said some pretty pungent things. He says he doesn't agree with that anymore. He uh, has apologized. Nonetheless, there are lots of ads with uh, young women who were in the service academy at the time, you know, saying how, how this made them feel. And so that issue is now front and center in that race, thanks to the money that has put it on the air almost. Uh, and I have, the clock.
1: Eleanor, I have the impression that Webb himself may not have enough money to respond ad for ad to what it is that the Republican Allen is putting out. And so the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee has been running a series of ads almost using the word liar to describe Senator mm-hmm. Allen not using that word, but describing him in a very, very negative way. So there's a double plus there for Webb. He doesn't have to spend his own money because he doesn't have that much of it. Right. And there's very negative stuff being put out about Senator. He's Allen. also
6: got uh, former President Clinton going in and doing a fundraiser for him. So there, th- there is an effort to uh, to match to match Allen.
0: You're listening to a special edition of the Calb Report. Politics, Pros and Cons, Election 2006. Live from the studios of Washington Post Radio, once again, our moderator, Marvin Kalb.
1: Fellow panelists, I am fascinated by one thing in particular about this campaign, and that is that whenever President Bush, a couple of you have alluded to this early, but I've got to go back. Whenever President Bush shows up to try to help a Republican candidate, to go to a fundraiser, to raise a lot of money for this guy, The guy or gal manages to find some hole in which to hide because they don't want to be seen in the company of the President of the United States. I don't remember anything quite like that, even, even, I hasten to add, in the Vietnam War. Now, what is going on here? At the latest Zogby poll, which Andy alluded to, not Zogby, but alluded to Gallup, uh, Bush's job approval has dipped now to 37%. And a couple of weeks ago it was forty two percent
4: and you know at the time that that uh, the the USA Today Gallup poll went up to forty two percent, a very senior Republican told me that as long as Bush was at forty percent or higher, he was not a liability for candidates uh, of course, now that he perhaps he would lower that number somewhat now that he's gone below forty percent
2: but let's bring some perspective to this. Clinton's approval rating was forty one percent in ninety four when his party lost uh, fifty three seats mm-hmm. um, so uh, 40, 41 would be better, 42 would be better, 45 would be better. But he, we haven't had in modern history a president dipping significantly in in approval without his party losing many seats. If you,
5: uh, go, if you go back to and look at the commercials, the political ads from two years ago or four years ago, Republican ads would routinely show the candidate with President Bush in some way, you know, standing together, holding their hands up, whatever. and now, the only ads you see with Republicans next to President Bush are ads paid for by Democrats, again, running against Republicans who are trying so hard not to show it. You know, if we, one of our correspondents today went to a number of websites of Republicans in tough races. They couldn't even find a reference to the president anywhere on these websites. And I mean, it, it's really, they're, they're distancing themselves as much as they can. And, and again, it's because, you know, the president at this point is, is not in a position to help and is clearly in. A position to hurt.
1: Candy, and I find that a number of them are even distancing themselves from the Republican Party. They're it's talking true. about being independent.
3: Actually, we see that more and more in elections anyway, that, that there are Democrats uh. who don't identify themselves as Democrats in a particular ad. But absolutely. I mean, to me, it's more running away from George Bush. You were talking about the, the steel ads in uh, in Maryland, because the response from the Democrats to they're going to say, I don't like puppies, and I really do. Their response was, yeah, he likes puppies, but he likes George Bush more. Uh-huh. So, it, you know, it is, I mean, tying uh, George Bush is is a way to say, You know, he's a Republican, but it's George Bush that's the problem, sort of not the party, if you you can see the difference.
1: Two years ago when when President Bush ran for re-election, he seemed to be saying to the American people, trust me, trust the Republican Party, we are the people who can help the American people get through this terribly difficult time. We're fighting terrorism. We've got this awful war in Iraq. He didn't say awful, I am. But at this particular time, and by the way, he won in 2004, but from what I'm hearing, that may not work at all this time, or already we see signs that it's failed.
3: Yeah, I mean, the message has been, we can keep you safer than the Democrats can. That's been the message for two election cycles. Now, uh, Americans look up and, you know, I hate to be a you know one-trick pony here, but they look up and they see the war in Iraq and they don't feel safer. They don't believe it anymore. Eleanor? Well, in
6: the 2004 election was about national security and it really wasn't about President Bush. It was about John Kerry and whether he mm. was a worthy successor. And uh, we talked about defining your opponent. And the Republicans did a very good job making the election turn on Kerry's uh, war credentials, as though they were somehow suspect. I mean, it was it was really an incredible job from a political technician's standpoint, how they managed to turn that on on Kerry. But a presidential election is a choice between two people. These midterm elections tend to be more a uh, referendum on the party in power if they're nationalized, as this particular election is. And so I think it's not about the Democrats. It's all about the Republicans.
4: And if you want to look at the consequences of this election, in, in 2002 and 2004, President Bush and the Republicans did a remarkable thing. They continued to build on their majority in the House. Um, And you heard in 2000, when President Bush was running for president for the first time, you would then hear Karl Rove talk about the goal of building a durable Republican majority that would endure for a generation. After President Bush's presidency, I think there are now no hopes of that, no hopes of uh, building on his congressional majority this time as he as he uh, succeeded in doing against expectations, really, the last two elections.
6: I mean, basically, they've squandered their lead on national security. Now, maybe it's a temporary uh, loss. But uh, I did read a quote, and this does come from Rahm Emanuel, who's a partisan Democrat who heads the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. But he said that what they've done to their credentials on national security is the equivalent of what Herbert Hoover did for the Republicans (laughs) on the economy. I thought that was a pretty good comparison.
1: Andy Kohut, what do you think this election on November 7th is going to tell us about the shape of the election in 08? Anything?
2: Um, Well,. I, that's a hard question to answer because I don't think you can really have a good sense of uh, what the environment for 08 is until you dramatically, you know, exactly what the how the drama has unfolded. I mean, if we do have a landslide, uh, it's going to produce one set of uh, imperatives for the Democratic Party and 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 the Republicans, as opposed to you know maybe the, the, the Republicans losing the House but not and not the Senate. I mean, it will it will. Define how uh, the, the political world looks at at 2008 that you you can and you can't envision. I mean, I think the one thing you can know you, we know from history is that <clears throat> no matter who's ahead as the Democratic favorite early in the game, that person's potential is imperiled because Democrats <laughs> never stick
3: with a frontrunner.
2: On the other hand, the Republicans always seem to. So uh, maybe Senator McCain will, uh, who is the front runner. Uh, we'll continue to do very well, but uh, it, it it's um, it's hard to imagine without really seeing the way this this post election is written.
6: Andy, could I just ask you what would constitute a landslide? How many seats, <laughs> or just taking the House and the Senate? Well, I think
2: taking the House and the Senate and getting a uh, getting a, a really substantial narrowing. margin in the House. I mean, thirty seats—that's okay. a landslide. That would be uh, winning, winning the uh, winning, winning the Senate and the House qual- even qualifies. Okay, so a, winning
6: the Senate even by one seat and the House by a margin of uh, of thirty seats. I mean, could, which or, would give them a the margin more. of fifteen or more, or more. Or more. Okay. And the
1: numbers right now, Andy, suggest that that is definitely a possibility.
2: Well, within the range. Remember the the, the comparison I mentioned earlier from right. Charlie Cook's work: thirty-nine seats, um, almost all the, of them Republican, okay. and if the Democrats lose, uh, Republicans lose 31 seats, as, which would be comparable to the Republicans losing 53 and 94. That's that's a big deal.
1: Candy Crowley, let, I mean, for, Andy's a bit cautious because he deals with numbers in a responsible way, but that shouldn't stop us. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, hundred seats. As <laughs> <What, laughs> right. you look to 08, oh, who in your judgment is the is the one Democrat, or who are the top two or three Democrats, who would stand a serious chance of being considered as presidential timber?
3: Well, you have to. I mean, despite the fact she's the front runner, you just have to be you know, to put Hillary in there. I mean, that is, uh, I think when when uh, Warner Mark Warner got out in Virginia, I thought that was a, an interesting. Uh, an interesting move. I'm still not sure exactly why he did it. At the moment, we have to take him on face value that he didn't want to go through the rigors of a campaign because he has a family, which I thought he knew before he started (laughs) testing it. But nonetheless, um, you know, I mean, I think there's going to be an alternative Hillary Clinton. Is it going to be John Edwards? I don't know. He looks good in, in the Iowa polls. John Kerry's talking about running again. I mean, I think what 06 does is the 06 election is it gives signals to people about whether they should run Now I think they've all made up their mind you know essentially but 06 elections set the table for 08 if you have a Democratic majority they get to decide what the agenda is they can send minimum wage to the president every day if they want to, and have the president veto it and have, the, have uh, Republicans vote against it so they can say, well, they voted against minimum wage. So this is about the, – the jockeying begins on the day after. I can't imagine if there's a Democratic uh, uh, majority in both the Senate and the House that we're going to get much done. It's back to what Eleanor said at the beginning. It'll be gridlock, but boy, it'll be great politics because all those people that want to run in the Senate for president are going to trot out their agendas and try them out there.
2: Eddie Cohen. One of the things that we should uh, think about in terms of what, what this may be like after the Democrats win, if indeed they do win, is that it's likely that the Republicans who are going to lose are the moderate Republicans who come from <gasps> blue states,
1: uh-huh. uh,
2: because that's what we see, that most of the... Most of the uh, most many of these competitive seats are in 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 democratic regions, and it's again we have to go back to ninety four because in ninety four what happened were was the democrats who were in southern and mostly what we call now red states lost. So this is going to create an even more polarized situation. That's very interesting. This looks like it's shaping up, but,
4: Susan. Of course, the other thing that happens uh, is that some democrats will win in red states. And they'll win in red states by not being, in some ways, quite traditional Democrats. For instance, you've got Harold Ford Jr. running in, in Tennessee, a red state. Uh, he's running for the Senate. Um, he's now ahead by a little. Uh, he'd be the first uh, African-American elected to the Senate from the South. Um, and he, Reconstruction. Well, elected. The Reconstruction oh. senators weren't, weren't elected. Oh. Um <laughs> he to diverge into their historic moment okay. of the calvert report <laughs> um, <All right. laughs> and you know uh harold ford junior has done that by being talking about his love for jesus and uh talking about guns and doing things that democrats you know used to kind of shy away from you also see democrats doing well in states like colorado and montana uh, and so the, in, in a way, it could make the country more polarized by losing some of these moderate Republicans. But I wonder if it also goes in the other direction when you look at some of these red state Democrats.
6: Yeah, the last thing Nancy Pelosi would want to be is a one-term uh, speaker. And so if Democrats are winning in Republican-leaning districts, it's sort of – I I think it doesn't pull the party to the left. It sort of forces it more to the center.
1: Bob Fuss, what does this say about the whole drift of politics in America Susan Page was saying before that Karl Rove had talked about the possibility of building a 25-year Republican majority. She said that's not going to happen and it's very likely not going to happen now. What does it say uh, to you anyway as someone who covers this about the state of American politics right now where we are going as a nation?
5: Well, I mean there has been a trend over the last at least dozen years of basically the moderates being squeezed out. Uh, certainly in the House, and the House has become extremely partisan. I don't see that, you know, changing. But, you know, we talk about gridlock if the Democrats take over one or both. We've had gridlock. I mean, this Congress has accomplished very little over the past two years, and and that gridlock is between the House and the Senate, and the House where there are no moderates and, and they take a conservative view and don't compromise, and the Senate where they have to compromise, and people like, you know, John McCain and others sort of in the middle kind of come up with something. And and so we've already had great... But I I think there's also going to be a, an immediate effect if the Democrats win either the House or the Senate. And that is that President Bush is going to be one unhappy president for one long time, because there's going to be congressional hearing after congressional hearing after congressional hearing with all the members of his cabinet being brought up there and raked over the coals. And and there's just all this sort of pent-up uh, feeling that that people need to be called to account. And all it takes is winning one... One of them, the House or the Senate, and the chairmanships switch, and the subpoena power switches, and and it's it's going to be those hearings are going to be very different than what they've been.
1: Candy, your sense of the historic moment? Are we in one? And you've only got I, about thirty seconds.
3: Ask me in twenty years. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, the the Democrats have had to show very little leg. Uh, on in this election, they just have to stand back. It's not that they've got some great winning agenda out there. It's the Demo- uh, the Republicans, are blowing it. I, I, so it's not an election that tells us too much about where they're headed. And I think you have to know where they're headed before you can judge whether this is historic.
1: I don't know very quickly. But if we're in the middle of fighting this Iraq war, and the U.S. is not doing well, that is a large historic moment biggest one since Vietnam.
6: It's an historic moment in the sense that we've had this conservative revolution building now for 20, 30 years, and it's turned, I believe, very much to the right. And this president has really expanded executive power under the guise of the war. If it can't be stopped, with some pushback, some political pushback in this election, I think then the Republicans really uh, solidify their control and ever more to the right. So I think it is a very important moment in uh, American history.
1: Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been fun, and we really must do this again, as they say. <laughs> uh, I thank you, Bob Fuss, Eleanor Clift, Susan Page, Candy Crowley, Andy Kohut, for joining me on this CALB report, which is co-sponsored by the George Washington University the National Press Club, and the Shorenstein Center on the Press Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. This program has been underwritten by the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. I'm Marvin Kalb, and as Ed Murrow used to say, good night and good luck, and let me add, don't forget to
0: vote. The Calb Report Series is a partnership production of the George Washington University, the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, and the National Press Club. Our associate producers are Catherine Monahan and Kat Bug. The producers are Matt Lindsay and Dick Golden. Our executive producer is Michael <coughs> Friedman. For more information, please call 202-994-8810. And special thanks to Washington Post Radio Program Director Greg Tandem, Vice President for Technical Operations David Gardner, and our studio producer Claude Jenkins. The Cal Report series is funded by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. This special forum was presented live from the studios of Washington Post Radio.